Um, good morning. Um, I'm uh, Jerry Hyman. I'm the director of um, a governance program here at CSIS. I'm also every other part of the governance program. So I'm the director, and I'm also the person who takes orders from the director. So there you go. Um, I used to be um, at uh, USAID, and I sort of started the democracy and governance programs there uh, in 1990 when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and I thought initially that we might be interesting for you to talk about that, but then I decided it was pretty boring um, for you to be listening to a whole lot of bureaucratic inside baseball. So I thought I instead would talk a little bit about the role of democracy in both foreign and assistance um, policy and try to deal with four questions that come up pretty regularly um, about it. And uh, I'll try to go through those quickly so that we can save more time for discussion and rebuttal by you. Um, so the first is, why does the U.S. Um, provide democracy and governance assistance, uh, especially when it involves sensitive issues and the domestic politics of other countries? So is this a good idea? Why, do we, why should we do it? The second is, are we imposing our own values uh, by doing that? And isn't, isn't that a bad idea, especially since we say we don't impose our own values? And the third is, uh, are we being hypocritical by supporting democracy and governance in certain countries and then not in other countries or not when the democracy doesn't turn out well? And the obvious case of that is Hamas, but we may well see that as well in Tunisia and in Egypt and in other places in the Middle East now, and potentially in other places, parts of the world as well. So, and then the fourth uh, question, which maybe we can get to or note, is um, whether any of this assistance is effective at all. And uh, we may, might hold that off for, for the discussion. Um, so um, why, why do this? Um, uh, why, why, would, why should we engage in democracy and governance promotion at all, especially since it wasn't always part of the assistance program and only really flowered after um, the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was a little bit of attempt before that, but basically it wasn't going anywhere. And now it is, and now it's part of the U.S. assistance program. And not only part of the assistance program, but in a broader framework, part of the U.S. foreign policy. And it wasn't always. So if you went back to the Eisenhower period, for example, after the war, nobody was talking about democracy as a central core of U.S. foreign policy all over the world. Um, it certainly was a part of the core for the countries that had been in the war, Germany and Japan, but it wasn't a foreign policy objective, um, and it certainly wasn't an assistance objective. So why do we do it? And I think there are two real reasons for, for it as a broad general matter. The first is um, that it, it, it is a part of our own values and how we think of ourselves. And not only that, but a part of, and I emphasize the word part of, not all of. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a um, democracy and governance, um, um, what's the word, uh, jihadist, uh, you know, democracy and governance, uber alles. Uh, it's part of our interests. It's not all of our interests. And that's part of what uh, you get to later on when, when you talk about um, balancing democracy and governance against other of our interests. Um, but it is part of our values, and it is part of our interests, and it is part, I think, of the kind of world that we would like to see. Uh, if you don't have some idea of what kind of a global order you want, then it seems to me you're uh, charting a, direct, a foreign policy and assistance direction uh, or course without a direction. Where, where do you want to wind up? And uh, although I, I tend to be far more Kissingerian than my democracy and governance colleagues about this, even realism has to have some sense of where you want to wind up. And the balance of power is one possible direction, but it's a passive one. It's, it says, well, let's see who's, in, who's, who's, who's coming up, and then we'll side with the other people to make sure that they don't get where they're going. Well, that's, it's a possible policy for sure, as Metternich uh, demonstrated uh, for a good long while, but it's, it's a reactive one. And it, it doesn't put out there where you would like to go and what kind of a world, what kind of a global order you would like to see achieved. Um, 
so part of our values, part of what, who, how we think we, of what we think we are, relates to freedom, uh, choice, human rights, justice, the rule of law, uh, equality, inclusion, all of these kinds of things which are wrapped up in the idea of what a democracy properly understood would look like. And so part of this is that we want to create or hope to create or contribute at least to the creation of a world which encompasses those kinds of values rather than an alternative, for example, which would be to be isolated in a world of autocracies and authoritarian uh, countries, never mind, as we were in the Cold War, when autocracies and authoritarian governments that wished us ill and would like to see our demise. So... Uh, even if they don't want our demise, even if they're willing to live um, uh, in the same world, uh, it, it seems to me that we, our view is, or at least mine, that it would be better to live in a world of democracies. It would be better to live in a world in which countries were like Western Europe or Japan or Korea or Indonesia or a whole variety now of other countries like that than to live in a world of... Um, uh, you know, North Koreas or, uh, or other, other similar kinds of countries, or Egypt's or Tunisia's or places like that before um, the change. The second reason uh, I think that we do it has to do with the rest of the assistance portfolio. And that really relates to what kind of governance our democracies at least have the potential to produce. A lot of the failures of a variety of non-democracy programs, economic growth, health, environment, a whole variety of other programs, fail in part because uh, the governance in the countries that they're trying to um, change uh, or that are trying to get economic growth in or better health in or better education in or whatever are governed by people who have narrow self-interests, often corruption is rampant, but even if they're not, they're ineffective, inefficient, uh, often intolerant, often ethnic issues dominate the political landscape. And so a lot of the attempt to get even seemingly neutral policies uh, like education or health uh, who's against health? Nobody's against better health. Fall short because the the governance of the country doesn't help you get your health program implemented. It's it's the bureaucracy doesn't work. Uh, there's too many self-interests. There's too much conflict. There are too many ethnic issues and engage against one another, and so a number of programs that might seem to have nothing to do at all with democracy fall short because of the poor performance, poor governance performance, and poor political will of the host government to um, affect even even programs that they themselves say they want. So part of it is our values, and part of it is to try to get a better governance environment for the rest of the portfolio, not just for the democracy and governance part. I realize that I'm presenting my own views here, so I'm going to try to get done here before the end of the, you know, in half an hour so that we can, you, as I said, you guys can rebut uh, all of these views. Um, so the second question um, is, aren't we imposing our values by doing that? I mean, who asked you, uh, that, who, who said, you know, who asked you to come in here and create a democracy in our country? And what about the Westphalian principles. What about the principle that said we're not going to engage in the internal affairs of other countries? Westphalia, the Treaty of Westphalia, was a result of the Thirty Years' War, mostly a religious war between Catholics and Protestants, and the, the, the finally having exhausted themselves after 30 years, they decided that the best policy would be not to interfere, two policies actually, not to interfere with one another's domestic political affairs. So if you're a Protestant, you don't go trying to change the Catholic position of some neighboring principality. And the second is, however, and that's often not remembered uh, when, as part of the Westphalian agreements, was that n- none of them would try to impose their own religious views on their own populations. So you're not going to interfere 
in my principality, but I'm also not going to try to impose my Catholic or Protestant views on the non-Catholics or non-Protestants in my own country. So what happened to that? What about that? And you will see that that principle, for example, is enshrined in the articles, the charter of the World Bank, which prohibits the bank from engaging in the internal political affairs of its member countries, whether borrowers or creditors. So very immediately after the war, when all of these uh, Bretton Woods arrangements were being formulated, the principle of non-interference, political interference, was, in, was enshrined in the, in the charter. And you see that in a whole variety of, of other arrangements on the, on the world stage as well. But partly for the second reason I gave you, um, the, that is to say the effect of poor governance on other parts of the portfolio, the bank itself, just to take one example of this, the bank itself now does virtually every element of the democracy and governance portfolio with the exception of elections and political parties. And just a brief anecdote about this, when we first started the democracy and governance program at, at AID, we had uh, some meetings, and one of the meetings, and we invite outside speakers from time to time, it was just a few of us, and one of the meetings we invited the, um, the general counsel of the World Bank to talk about democracy and governance, possible democracy and governance programs at the, at the bank. And he sort of came in. He was kind enough to come to the meeting. And he came in and he said, well, this is going to be a very short meeting because we're not going to have any of these democracy and governance programs at the bank that you're thinking about because of the charter. We are prohibited from doing all of these kinds of things that you're talking about, the rule of law, civil society, elections and political processes, governance, uh, anti-corruption, all of these kinds of things. Forget about it. Forget about it. Even though he was from Japan, he picked that part up from Brooklyn. Forget about it. We are not going to do that because of the charter arrangements. Well, you came back 10 years later, and the bank was doing every single one of those programs in spades, with the exception of elections and um, political parties. And the reason for that had to do with this second reason I gave you, and that is that they found that governance was a major impediment to the implementation and the success of their own anti-poverty programs, and that they couldn't get to the anti-poverty part without addressing some of the governance parts. So although you cannot go to a bank meeting and use the, I, mean, I think you could possibly use the F word, but you cannot use the D word. So you can, you can talk about all the elements, all the constituencies of democracy programming, but you cannot use the democracy word for the reasons that he laid out initially. Um, moreover, I think it's fair to say that in all of the public opinion polls uh, around the world, including the so-called geographic barometers, the Latino barometer, the Asia barometer, and Afro-barometer, Afro when you ask people what kind of a government they want, what kind of a country they want, democracy scores very high everywhere. So it's not a cultural matter. It's not just you know, Western Europeans who want democracy. It's broadly popular all over the world. The, that's the good news. The bad news is that people don't often know what they mean when they say they want a democratic government. And often, unfortunately, what they mean is they want, uh, they want to be rich. And since they look around the world and they say, where are the rich countries? Those are the democratic ones. They say, aha, well, if we put in democracy, we too will have swimming pools and um, country clubs and golf courses. And instead of being in these rice fields, we're going to be playing golf out there with all those other people. So the unfortunate part of that is what do they mean when they say they want a democratic government? And yet I think it's fair to say that they understand enough uh, to know that um, they mean elections, they mean popular decision-making, uh, at least about the big issues. And you see this as soon as a country turns from an autocratic government to a democratic government, the very first election, the lines go for a mile sometimes. People standing in line for hours waiting to vote. And the bad news is that after the second election, the line gets shorter, and after the fourth election, it gets really short. 
So the, there's good news and bad news in all this democracy thing, and it unfortunately turns out that the countries that have the least amount of democracy are the ones in which democracy is the most popular, and the ones that have the most amount of democracy are the ones that can see some of its flaws and for which it may not be as popular as it might have started out. But I think it's fair to say that this is not just a, uh, an imperialistic scheme uh, if you ask people what kind of com- government they want, what kind of a country they want, by and large and in overwhelming proportions, even in countries that have had democracy for a while, they still want to keep democracy, notwithstanding their, understand- their recognition of some of its um, flaws. Um, moreover, assistance is different from imposition. You're not imposing assi- – uh, assistance has a meaning. It means that you – and in its best form, at least in my view – it means that you're helping local actors do what they want to do in their own country. So it's not as though the army uh, – leave Iraq and Afghanistan aside – it's not as though the, ar- the, the army is going in there and imposing democracy, which you instead are doing in 100 countries around the world, is helping people who – would like to create a more democratic environment to give them the tools to do so. And not only that, but there are no cases that I know of anyway in which um, the government in power, even an autocratic or authoritarian government, doesn't know what is being done by the donors in supporting democracy. They're not secret. These are not secret programs. They're not covert programs. They're open programs, and the governments know that they are being done. So it's it's not an it's not an imposition. Now, the one a, a few possible exceptions to this, but even there, the government knows, are, are Cuba, where, as you know, a guy's been arrested for bringing in um, cell phones um, and, and and so on. Uh, but in most programs, these are part of the, it's clearly part of the donor assistance program, and they are quite clear that they're supporting uh, democratic reforms. Um, That said, I think it's fair to say also that uh, we don't entirely – we aren't entirely square with what we say we're going to do and what we actually do. Uh, We say we're going to leave all of this up to everybody in the country, and we're just trying to help them make the choices. And yet we have programs on gender equality, on uh, lesbian, bisexual, et cetera, et cetera, rights, and so on and so forth. And if you took a vote in the country, I think in many of these countries, and certainly not all of them, that's not what they would, that's not what they would support. And yet that's part of the package of democracy and other assistance that the U.S. and its colleagues in Western Europe provide. So it's not as though we're totally value neutral about these things, even with respect to uh, respecting the internal uh, views of the country. That said, we don't impose those things, but we try to support them. Let me put Afghanistan and Iraq aside maybe, and we can come back to that in the discussion if, if you'd like. The third question was had to do with hypocrisy, and that is, uh, what, what about places like Hamas uh, victory in Gaza? Uh, what would happen if um, – what are we going to do about what – will, what will the profile look like for democracy and governance assistance in Egypt now that the Muslim Brotherhood has won the election there? What would we do in countries in um, – what we do in, in, in Libya and in Tunisia and other places where a popular election results in a government that is either inimical to the United States or itself incorporates values, some values at least, that we don't agree with. And there it seems to me um, there is a sort of tension between these various different things. What's the package of democracy and governance uh, assistance that we're providing? And one of them has to do with the rule of law in our view, and that part, part of that has to do with human rights. So I think we make no apology for including those rights or those values in our assistance uh, programs. And I think it's fair to say, or at least I take the position, that it's one thing to say you're not going to recognize a government that was popularly elected, and it's another thing to say you're not going to provide assistance to a government that has values or takes a policy different from your own. 
there's, I think, no particular reason we are not compelled to provide assistance to every government that's democratically elected any more than we're compelled to provide assistance to any country in the world. That is a decision the U.S. needs to make, partly on these kind of value issues, partly on other foreign policy interests of its own. But assistance is not a right any more than they're required to accept the assistance. So it's a question of whether the assistance we want to provide is, uh, is one that, uh, that they feel they want to accept and uh, what happens when you have a non-representative government. Um, this gets to the question, which we, again, don't put aside for another day, about the so-called Paris Declaration on aid effectiveness and what should the host countries decide and what should the donor countries decide. So put that aside for another discussion on another day. But it does seem to me fair to say that nothing compels any donor to provide assistance to any particular country. And that is a decision which both the host country and the recipient country need to take independently of one another. Now, that's not to say it wouldn't be wise to provide assistance to countries that are maybe inimical to your own, but that's a separate foreign policy and assistance decision, it seems to me, and not necessarily one that's required just because they have a democratic government, even if they do have a democratic government, which includes more than just elections. Um, finally, uh, and maybe we can uh, leave this mostly for our, uh, the discussion, and that is, well, okay, even if um, it's part of our values, even if it's part of the assistance package for these more instrumental reasons, even if we're not imposing it, and even if we're not hypocritical, is it any, you know, are we doing anything? Is this just wasted money? Is this just money down the drain? Is it effective at all? And there, I think the, the, the jury is definitely out. Um, we did um, a pet project of mine when I was in the government at the time was to do a quantitative and qualitative analysis of whether things were working or not. The quantitative analysis, which is much touted by AID, and I think um, incorrectly, came back and said, you know, it turns out that there is a statistical correlation here uh, um, between uh, um, assistance provided and positive movement in democracy and governance. And so there's a, this is not a random thing. There's, we, can, we can show that there is an effect, an, a statistically significant effect of democracy assistance on democracy and governance in recipient countries. What's fail, what, the, what, what, what the proponents of this, and I, I was the one that, wanted this study done, so I'm not neutral about it. And that's, so the good news is that there is a statistically significant effect, but the, 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 the other thing that they don't much mention, my colleagues who were with me on this at the time, is that the, the statistically significant effect is small. It's tiny. It's, it's statistically significant, but statistically significant does not mean significant in the normal sense of the term. It just means it's non-random. Okay, well, so it turned out that for every, they claimed that for every million dollars of money spent in general in many countries of the world, you would get a 0.1 increase in the Freedom House score. Well, Freedom House goes from one to seven, so you're getting 0.1 increase on a statistically significant basis for every million dollars. So. For every country, you're going to, you know, if you put $10 million in there, you, you may get one point up on the Freedom House scale over some period of time. So, yes, it's statistically significant, but it's also pretty small. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You have to, I think, ask yourself, well, how significant are, are the other assistance programs, which also gets to a broader discussion, which you can also put aside maybe for another day. Does assistance make any difference no matter what kind of assistance you're providing, and how much money do you have to spend for what kind of effect, whether it's in health, education, environment, economic growth, or democracy and governance. But let's, we can either have a discussion about that after we, for the rest of our time, or we can put it off for another day. So I think the question is whether this thing works or not, um, and what are the ingredients of making it work better, what are, how would you improve the quality of your effectiveness uh, or improve your effectiveness? How would you, is this enough 
effect to be warranting the funding of te- you know taxpayer dollars. These are not, nobody's contributing. This is not a contribution. This is not like the United Way, you know, where they send. We, we don't send out envelopes to the American public and say, you know, would you like to contribute to the Democracy and Governance Program? This is a tax. You know, if you don't pay it, you go to jail. So you, the burden is on the government, it seems to me, to show that this is money well spent, not on the taxpayers to, to, to demonstrate that. And I think the jury, to be honest with you, is a bit out, not just on democracy and governance, but on assistance more generally. So those are the four questions. Um, why do we do it? Um, uh, are we hypocritical about it? Uh, are we imposing our values, and is it effective? And so with that, maybe we can open this floor for discussion and any of these other questions that I said we could put off for another day, we can do today. Thank you very much. Sure, just go for it. Great. Thanks, Jerry. Um, I apologize that our wonderful host, Ambassador Garveling, can't throw out the first question. But I'm yeah, I, know, the I noticed of doing that this that. was so important to him that he let, he's not here today. So Ambassador Garblink will be back see next month. Why that is okay. Um, I actually wanted this is a, has been a very thought provoking conversation. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of thoughtful questions to dig deeper into some of these topics. So before we get there, I sort of want to take a sidestep and ask you sort of a different type of question on your career in general. So I think it's very interesting. Um, some of the speakers we've had in this series have talked about um, their journey, uh, how they got into the field, why they've stayed in the field or left the field. So correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were practicing law actually before heading to USAID. So if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to sort of shift paths and take on a career at USAID and perhaps a piece of advice to those who may want to work in USAID. Okay, well, I'll be brief because this is a sort of uh, grandfather's favorite kind of thing. You know, when I was a kid, here's what I did. And, um, uh, you know, I can't, uh, I think there are a lot of grandkids that would, uh, you know, cringe when that sort of conversation starts. So, um, although my autobiography is incredibly interesting um, to me, I think it can't be very interesting to you. Um, and unfortunately, it, I, I, I think it won't shed very much light on the question that you, the second question you asked, which is what you know, advice? Because it was a, it was one of these peculiar things that you read a lot about, but it's very, it, it's not very helpful. And that is, a, it just happened to be in the right place at the right time when the right issue happened to come up. But that doesn't give you much of a, okay. So how do you? The real question is, so how do I get to the right place at the right time when the right issue comes up, right? And if you do, then you can be president in the United States. But if you don't, and it's not a very helpful thing to say that. I was practicing law. I had a previous career as an anthropology, as an anthropologist as well. Um, I did my uh, most of my work in Southeast Asia, Malaysia in particular, in Indonesia. Um, and then I, uh, for reasons I won't get into unless you're really interested, wound up practice, uh, going back to law school, practicing law to try to do joint ventures, um, mostly for to try to get economic growth going in a country that didn't have much at the time. Now it's booming. Uh, when I lived in Malaysia, the highest building in the whole damn country was, I think, five stories or seven stories. It's now got the second tallest building in the world. So if you had told me that the second tallest building in the world is going to be in Malaysia when I was in this rice field, I'd have told you you were, you know, nuts. Um, so that's how I wound up in practicing law. So I was practicing law down um, on um, Pennsylvania Avenue. And a friend who had gone to language school with me, this is getting more than you care to know, when we were both about to go to um, Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, happened for, again, a variety of reasons you don't need to worry about, happened to be on the NSC at the time, uh, at the National Security Council. And a, a person who was uh, in the administration wanted came up with the idea on her own. I don't know where exactly, or maybe it wasn't on her own, but she came up with the idea that she wanted to do a democracy program in Asia. Well, there were no democracy programs anywhere at AID except a few administration of justice programs that had to do with the rule of law, had to do with the um, police training that AID had provided in Guatemala and Honduras in the 70s, and that resulted in some human rights abuses by the police that had been trained by AID. 
including the killing of three nuns, I think it was three, I don't remember how many, I think it was three. And so there was a reaction on the Congress, and uh, as it happened that uh, uh, Secretary Kissinger led a commission, and it led to a program only for those countries on the administration of justice. And how could the courts be made more robust, and how could these police um, programs be uh, contained in a human rights envelope? And it also led to a prohibition by AID uh, by the Congress on AID to not do any more police training, which has been whittled away over a number of years, reasons we can also talk about if you like. Anyway, it, in that vacuum um, of programs, she decided she, for reasons I never even asked her about, she wanted to do a democracy program, but there weren't any. And there weren't any, you know, now you can get degrees in democracy and governance. You know, at Georgetown, you can even get one, a master's. You can get a master's degree in democracy. You couldn't in those days. Get, there were no such programs. There was, it wasn't a field. It didn't exist. There were some programs, but they, you know, programs, if you did a program, if you did a course on democracy, you were going to read Aristotle and Plato and, you know, the Republic and Hobbes and Locke. You were not going to read you know, all these kind of things that you read now. So these things didn't exist, um, but this happened to be uh, 1989, and if you recall that in November of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. And so all of a sudden, Poland, Hungary, and at that time Czechoslovakia were now free of this sort of Warsaw environment that they were in, Soviet Union and so on and so forth, um, and they wanted uh, the leaders, to the extent that they had leaders, uh, wanted two things. They wanted a market economy, because they had just lived through 40 years of a non-market economy, and they wanted democracy. So unlike what we were just talking about, they actually wanted it. That was part of what they asked for. And there were no such programs at AID in the assistance area, and they wanted some assistance, so that was number one. Number two, Eddie had to figure out where to put these things bureaucratically, where to, where, what to do with these countries. And uh, there were only three geographical bureaus at the time because nobody gave assistance to the Soviet Union. I mean, the U.S. didn't. Uh, in fact, I don't think anybody did, but the U.S. certainly did not provide assistance to the Soviet Union or its so-called satellite countries. And Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia were Soviet satellite countries. Um, and so uh, they had to put it somewhere, and um, even at AID, they knew that Poland was not in Latin America, and uh, they also knew, even at AID, that it wasn't in Africa. And so the only uh, region that, was, that existed at the time, now there's a Europe and Eurasia program, but there wasn't at the time, uh, was the Asia Near East program. And on, I guess the theory that you could potentially walk from, uh, you know, physically, you could get from... Um, uh, India to uh, Poland, therefore we put it there. So I walked in the door and there was a task force on Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia, whereas the rest of the bureau, of course, was all on the Middle East and Asia. Uh, so there was this stupid little task force pulled together out of the Egypt program and the this and the that um, that was supposed to deal with Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. So they told me to go to there and and to design a, pro a democracy program for Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. I barely knew where these places were. I'd never been there. Uh, you know, I, I knew enough geography to know that they were somewhere around Russia, but um, I didn't, I'd, never been in, I'd never been to Europe. I'd been in Asia. Um, and the quickest way to Asia is not through Europe. Um, to, so um, I, that's how I got into it, um, just purely oh, – oh, sorry, I forgot a little step. So she wanted to do this program in Asia, and my friend at the NSC said, well, I know this guy. He's practicing law, and he also did a PhD, and his field was Asia. Do you, are, you think you might be interested in him? And absent anyone else, as again I say to you that there were no programs, so nobody had degrees in this subject. Nobody even knew what it was. She said, well, okay, better, better him than, you know, nobody, I guess. And so uh, she looked at the resume, thought I was better than the alternative, which was the waiter. And um, so uh, uh, that's how I got the job. It's not, a, it's not a trajectory that you can very easily replicate, I think. So it's, it's not got very many lessons for you. 
because now um, this is a field, as I said, and and so to do it, you know, they put out they put out notices when they're hiring and all of that kind of thing. So you apply, but there's a lot of other people that are applying also. I couldn't have gotten the job I got if I were applying now with the same credentials I had then. So this is another example of the Peter Principle. I don't know if you know that principle at all. It was fairly popular. It was a book about it, and it said people in bureaucracies rise to the level of their own incompetence. So you started a program, you do well, et cetera, et cetera. They, they promote you until you get to the point of promotion where you're incompetent to do the job, and then it's too late, and you're in it, so they can't get rid of you. And so that's how I got to the job. <laughs> called the Peter Principle. Google it. <laughs> um, so. Any questions? Comments, rebuttals. Yeah, it doesn't have to be just a question. If you feel this was nuts, say so, <laughs> please. Hi, Jerry. Um, Anna Saito, CSIS. So as you know, I've, I've been working with Dan Rendy on sort of the whole aid effectiveness sort of agenda and what that means. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you refer to the Paris Declaration? I know you said you wanted to table that, but can you share with us sort of the work that you did there and your views on that, having been at AID and sort of um, where do we go from here and where do you think the Russia administration's going with this whole thing and then the 30% and just, yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, um, as it happens, I wrote an article on the Paris Declaration, which you can Google on your website here at CSIS. It was on a meeting uh, of implementing the Paris Declaration. I'll get to that, what it is in a minute, that, that met in Busan, South Korea. So uh, I wrote an article about it. So if you want to look at my views in depth, there's an article on it. I'm sure it's really interesting. Um, the Paris Declaration was done in 2005, and it's called the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness. And lo and behold, it turned out that they did this in Paris, so it's not just that they came up with that title uh, out of the blue. So they met it. The donors and the, and the recipient countries, or at least a good number of donors and a good number of recipients, met in Paris and uh, had a conference on aid effectiveness, on what was working and what was not, not just on democracy. It had nothing to do with democracy. It was just across the board. And they came out with a declaration which countries could, they didn't adopt it in the technical sense of a treaty, but they could affiliate themselves with, I guess you could say, called the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness. And it had five elements to it in which the argument was that the literature, and I don't know what the literature was on this, to be honest with you, because I never saw what was supposedly this literature that led to this. But anyway, the agreement was there would be five principles. The principle, the first principle was country ownership. So it would be the country would, the recipient country would own its development portfolio and develop its development plan. And it would formulate it. Secondly, that um, the donors would align themselves with the recipient country's own development plan. So they wouldn't come in with a program. They would align themselves with the recipient country's development plan. So ownership and alignment were two. The third one was harmonization, and that was that the donors would try to uh, – this is a little bit sort of a tax principle – they would stop sending one delegation after the next to the country, and they would try to harmonize their, their approach to the country. They would stop sending – they would try to do joint, more joint delegations. They would try to do more joint planning. They would stop taking up the precious time of, of ministries to keep talking to one donor delegation after the next rather than doing their job. So the Ministry of Energy was spending too much time talking to the Danes, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Germans, the Americans, the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera, and wasn't spending any time on energy or whatever. So that was harmonization. A third was managing for results, which is not much remembered in this discussion about um, – because the, the, the recipients promised to, to manage these programs for results – and the fifth was um, alignment, harmonization, ownership, 
managing for results, and I'm missing one. Do you remember? Anybody remember what it is? Um, it'll come to me in a second. Anyway, that was supposed to be the guiding. These were supposed to be the five guiding principles for donors and recipients, and how the future post 2005 assistance programs would be developed both by the donors and by the recipients. There were two meetings after that on how well this was working. One was in Accra, and then next the last, the third one was in Busan, and the Busan one was just last December, and that's the one that I tried to write this paper about, saying I thought, um, to put it mildly, this, these principles were not working very well. Um, they weren't working well, I thought, for several reasons, and they, it really goes back to the second part of the first question. One is that it assumes that the countries have a development plan that is actually organized toward getting development and that they're behind this plan and that they're not authoritarian, corrupt, etc., etc. governments out for their own selves. Well, that's a bit of a leap if you ask yourself which are the countries that we're working in on assistance and development. They are not, I wouldn't say, you know, there's a, a sort of a famous uh, sort of slogan in the development, you know, world, which uh, everyone recognizes ridiculous, and that is getting to Denmark. You know, they are not Denmark. If they were Denmark, they wouldn't be assistance recipients. They'd be Denmark. You know, and Denmark is a provider. It's not a recipient of assistance. So you have to ask yourself, well, how do you... How did Denmark become Denmark? Long discussion, which again we can have on another day. But one of the ways it didn't become Denmark is by being the Ivory Coast. Okay, it, it didn't, it wasn't Bangladesh. It wasn't Haiti. And it, the difference between Denmark and Haiti is not just that one is rich and the other is poor, it's how did one of them become rich and the other, why did the other stay poor? And how I think the, develop, the, 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 the question for development literature is, well, how did some poor countries get to be rich? Not just in the 18th century, but in this century or in the last one. How did Singapore become Singapore? It wasn't always rich. When I was there, it was dirt poor. Okay, so how did Singapore, which has no natural resources, et cetera, et cetera, how did it become rich? Now, it's not a great story for democracy, i got to say, because Lee Kuan Yew may not be the greatest Democrat in the world. But the point of the Paris Declaration that is not in the Declaration is what are the development plans and what is the kind of government and what is the kind of plan that the recipient country has to have in order for a reasonable donor to align itself with. And that is, was conveniently not discussed at the Paris meeting. Well, if you don't discuss that, then all the rest of this, it seems to me, is frivolous. I'm not interested, I think, and this is just my own personal view, I realize that, I don't see that the United States should align itself with the de so-called development plans of kleptocratic, autocratic, corrupt governments that don't look like they're going to get development. That instead look like they're going to... I mean, why should we align ourselves with whatever Robert Mugabe thinks his development plan is? Mm -hmm. it just, it's just stupid. And it's a waste of resources, in my opinion, of the host government, and I don't think it addresses the primary problem of the recipient government. So it seems to me that unless those kind of issues are addressed as part of the Paris Declaration, it, it doesn't make sense to say that the host government, or that the donor governments are going to align themselves with any old plan that the recipient country puts on the table as a, quote, development plan, which it supposedly, quote, owns. I think you have to look below that. You have to ask yourself, well, what kind of a plan is this? Who owns it? What does it mean to own, what does it mean, that the, the, the Paris Declaration is written in terms of countries, and yet, obviously, the, 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 the partner is a government and was intended to be a government. Well, the, a country and a government are not the same thing. In a democratic government that truly is representative in this, you know, if you're Denmark, it ought to be representing the government. There ought not to be a big difference between the interests of the country and that 
the programs put forward by the government. But there's unfortunately too many governments that are not putting those kind of, of plans on the table because the dissonance between the interests of the government bureaucrats and of the country are quite substantial. And if you don't see that dissonance, that difference between the, the interests of the government and the interests of the larger development of the country, you're going to continue to think that the government and the country are the same thing. And that's the way the Paris Declaration is written. So that's just one of many problems I have with the Paris Declaration and its, its, um, its use as a paradigm. This administration uh, at AID, but broad, more broadly speaking, and the, you know, the secretary as well, have, ali- have aligned themselves completely with the Paris Declaration. I mean, that is their policy. And so, among other things, they've included some, um, which you alluded to, as part of that, but not the whole of it, um, the um, reduction of funding to host country entities, NGOs and for-profit, and more money going to the recipient countries. Again, this is a long discussion which we can have on another day. In theory, I think that's right, but in practice, what is the nature of the recipient government? What is the nature of the recipient country? What kind of financial um, controls do they have? What happens if you give cash to Mugabe? Where is it going to wind up? Uh, a whole variety of those kinds of programs. So it's, it's, as a principled matter, I think it's right to say as much money as possible should be going to the countries, to, if your purpose is development, objectives is to the is to the internal um, institutions of the country whether in the government or outside the government but that assumes that those are functioning well you know well governed institutions inside or outside and that they are going to achieve the results managing for results that they're being given the money for Last thing is, just because you're giving money to the U.S. NGOs and U.S. for-profits doesn't mean they're going to manage for results either. So this is a bigger, longer, more complicated discussion in my view. But I believe that the administration has too broadly jumped on the Paris principles, so-called, at the broadest macro level, but also at this level of funding local institutions um, and uh, without looking enough and deeply enough at the quality of what they're going to be funding and what kind of results they're going to be getting out of that. And one last point, there is a, a persistent pathology, it doesn't matter who is in the government, that the newest country that happens to come have some kind of a breakthrough in the first year or two gets a grotesque amount of money that cannot possibly be spent in that country in a reasonable way uh, and then gets starved two years down the road. And this was true in Russia. It was true in Indonesia. It was true in Nigeria. It's now going to be true in Tunisia. I can assure you that the same pattern is happening. And I don't even need to look at the numbers. There's way more money I can bet. I'll bet your whatever you've got that, uh, which I realize, you know, given your debt structure, I may not want to make that debt, uh, that bet with you. Um, uh, your the likelihood is by, without looking, that Tunisia uh, is getting way more money than it can absorb this year, and that five years from now, it will be yesterday's program. We put a billion dollars the first year into Russia. The first year after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was nothing there to fund. And five years later, I think they got $40 million. Now, that's just nuts. I mean, that's just a, it's ridiculous. The same thing is true for Afghanistan. The same thing is true of Iraq and Tunisia and Egypt and all of these other places. And it's a pathology that infects no matter. It is a nonpartisan pathology. It makes no difference whether you're um, uh, a Republican or a Democrat. You do the same stupid thing. Yeah, please. I have a 
Um, first of all, thank you so much for your talk. It's very interesting. Um, first, I'm wondering if you can talk about the strategic difference between direct democracy and governance programs and the political conditions and so-called strings attached to our overall foreign assistance um, to countries. And then secondly, as these new types of donor models emerge from countries like China that don't have these so-called strings attached, how does that, or does that threaten our U.S. foreign assistance goals and objectives? And I'm thinking particularly of places like Malawi, where recently established diplomatic relations with China, we've seen their governance standards go way down and like their MCC compact withdrawn and obviously that's changed since Banda came to rights, but sure. you know. Um, again, a bigger discussion for possibly another day, but just to be brief, and I apologize for doing this because I'm sort of collapsing what are complicated questions into you know very short answers here. Um, and so any of these things we could do a whole session on or, or even more on another day. Um, so you really have two questions there, I think. One has to do with conditionality and strings, and the other has to do with China. Um, so let me take one at a time. Um, part of the, it turned out that conditionality, even for benign conditionality, like, uh, didn't work so well, it was argued. Um, and, that, and that's where the program that you alluded to, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, I don't know if you all know what that was, but anyway, there was a period in which the donors were engaged in what was called policy, or at least the U.S. called policy dialogue, other, other countries called it something else, in which you would get together with the government and say, okay, well, we'll give you X million dollars if you do the following, quote, right policy. So if you adopt a market, we'll give you $15 million, and you can do with that whatever you like. Now, what they didn't mean was you, you couldn't buy a swimming pool for yourself in, you know, outside of Paris, but within the country, you could use it for whatever budget or other purposes you wanted to, as long as you did the policy, because we wanted the policy to be right. So it was a way of creating an incentive for a country to do the right, quote, policy. Now, that gets, of course, back to the Paris Declaration, doesn't it? Because the assumption was that they weren't going to do the right plan. The plan, that the development plan, wasn't going to put the right principles in unless we bribed them to do it. The Paris Declaration assumes that they are going to put the right, quote, plan into effect, and therefore we're going to align ourselves with it. Well, it turned out that what they, too many places did was that they pocketed the money and they didn't do the policy, or they pretended to do the policy, but they didn't actually. And so the Millennium Challenge Corporation was an attempt by the U.S. anyway to rectify that by saying, we're not going to pay you money up front to change your policy. If you changed your policy, and if you do well performance-wise, then we'll give you some money to uh, either reward you or to get you over the other problems that the right policy, quote, entails. So, for example, if you put market policies into place and a lot of state-owned enterprise employees get fired, which they will, you know, not unlike our own situation right now, we will give you some money and then you can cushion the effect of the closing of these state-owned enterprises. That was the idea of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Let's put the Millennium Challenge Corporation aside for a moment because in my view it, it, it has wound up to be neat in theory, but maybe not so neat in practice. So again, another day we can talk about the Millennium Challenge Corporation. But the point of the conditionality was initially at least well-meaning. And I think, in my opinion, um, what ought to be done here is to look at what happened and what didn't happen and what, was, what worked and what didn't on the conditionality rather than eliminate the conditionality entirely. And that is what has been the lesson. The lesson is conditionality didn't work so let's get rid of conditionality, but maybe the right lesson is, well, how can we make conditionalities work better? Um, and so the strings that are normally attached are of several kinds, and that one of them at least goes back to the position I alluded to earlier, having to do with whether you can provide should, whether the U.S. should be compelled to provide assistance to countries that are democratic, but not necessarily aligned with its own foreign policy views. And my answer then and now is no, it shouldn't be compelled to do that. So part, I think it's, at least in the United States, and I think it's true for all other countries, even the ones that don't pretend that they're not, like the Swedes and the Danes and all that, our assistance programs are tied to foreign policy. In the U.S., 
overtly, very, very overtly, which again, another we can talk about that another day too. And I think correctly, that is part of, I think part of the assistance program is part of our foreign policy um, quiver. It's part of the tools that we have for foreign policy reasons. Now, you would hope that part of your foreign policy is to get a better developed world and one that you would like to live in. That's what I meant when I said, what are our goals? But there are other foreign policy objectives that we have also. And so if a government takes a position on behalf of its country, again, leaving aside that country government equality or equivalence, and that, that government is at odds with our own, let's say, Venezuela, I don't think we should be required necessarily to provide Hugo, Hugo Chavez with assistance. Um, and so to me, it's not wrong in a moral sense to say, look, we have a variety of interests here. One of them is development. One of them is democracy and governance, but it's not the only one. And therefore, part of what we provide assistance is going to be aligned with our other foreign policy interests. China has pursued this, uh, and there's a bit of a debate about this, really, whether this is whether the stereotype of China is correct or not. But China has been pursuing, especially in Africa, a, an assistance policy that is really somewhat devoid from, or quite a bit devoid from, these governance and other kind of principles, and rather has to do with uh, what we did a lot during the Cold War, which is use assistance to, to try to, to buy allies, if you want. And that included a whole lot of very unsavory governments, uh, the Congo being one example that you know, Ambassador Gar uh, Garvelink, uh, we could ask him about if he were here. But he's not. He's vacationing, so we can't do that. So you should ask him about it the next time he shows up. What about all those Congo funds that went to his predecessor governments? China doesn't care so much about that. What it cares about are, are, are allies and resources. And so at least the, the theory is that it's using its assistance funds to um, create projects and, and programs that will result in better contracts for its own uh, companies and allies in the international sphere. Now, we did that ourselves you know, during the Cold War for sure, and to some extent even now. So I think you have to be a little bit careful about how pure we are uh, on, on this issue um, and how impure the Chinese are. But it is true that this Paris Declaration, for example, came out of an organization called the Development Assistance Committee, which is a committee of the OECD, which is the industrial world. And China's not a member of that. And it did not sign up to and is not a part of the DAC the Development Assistance Committee. And it didn't sign up to the Paris Declaration. And it didn't sign up to a whole lot of other DAC-related good, good assistance programs, program principles. So it's, at least in the most negative uh, examples that you could, you could provide, you could say, well, China's really pursuing a foreign policy that uh, of its own and a development policy of its own, of which assistance is really an instrument. And that's what it's using its assistance funds for in Africa. And the result of that potentially is that it's paying a lot of money to some pretty unsavory governments in order to get the kinds of resource uh, contracts and other kinds of things that it wants from them. Will that be a successful strategy over the long term? I don't know. First of all, is that, its own, is that really a fair characterization? There was a, a guy from the Japanese foreign ministry that came here about a year and a half ago and very quietly put on the table a critique of that view. He didn't exa exactly put it that way, but it was very clear that, that was what he, that's what he thought because he had worked, was working with the, Japan, with the Chinese foreign ministry. The second is, although he's from Japan, the second is, um, it, it, will it work? And I think we've seen in the past that people resent some of this kind of stuff, uh, the, the people in the country do. They know what the money is being used for. They know the kind of government they've got, and it might not be so good for China over the longer term. So you have a short-term, long-term kind of question, even for China, even if that were its goals, is that the best way to go about you know, getting them? But um, I think that, look, even China is a little bit more complex than that, it turns out, or at least if this Japanese 
um, researcher was right. Uh, and and so um, it, we, if but if it is if that is their policy, there will be a difference between the DAC countries, the DAC donors, and the and the Chinese on how they do, uh, how we do assistance in places like Africa or other resource-rich countries. Unfortunately, I think we are slightly over time, and I want to be respectful sure of your schedule. <laughs> so thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking Dr. Hyman. Thank you.